Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the greatest podcast in American history, also known as Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America. My name's Dylan, uh, and today we're talking about World War One. This is the first of two podcasts on World War One. Today we'll be looking sort of at how the world, the, the war took place outside of the United States, so stepping out of the U.S. for a little bit. And then the next week's episode will be on... Um, Sort of how people dealt with it at home, right? Just because World War One wasn't really fought in the U.S. doesn't mean that it didn't affect people here. So for today's podcast, three major things we're going to talk about. One, the European alliance system, right? So the sort of series of interlocking alliances, treaties, all this stuff that sort of helped lead to World War One. Talk about the beginnings of World War One, right? So looking at how the war came to be, why it came to be, right? These things aren't destined to happen, especially not the way that they... Like, no, nothing, nothing is destined to happen the way that it did. And then we'll also look at sort of the war in Europe, right? I'm not going to go into major battles or troop movements or anything like that, but we'll talk about some of the specifics there on how it ended in Europe. So a couple major questions we're going to talk about in this podcast. One, what caused World War One? right? So why did it happen? That's sort of the big, the big question that people still argue about today. Two, how did the war play out in Europe, right? So what did it look like? on the ground, what were some things to know, like what were the, the groups fighting each other and how did that actually happen? And then finally, did World War One create a new Europe, right? So was Europe reborn out of this major conflict? So before we go into all that, instead of talking about a specific person, I want to talk about a sort of a time period, a word to describe a time period. The fin de siècle, the end of the cycle, prior to World War One, right? Europe was going through this, experiencing this idea of the sort of fin de siècle, right? end of the century, end of the cycle. Many Europeans, as a result of this, and they were calling this at the time, right? This isn't sort of a thing uh, a nomenclature used later. This is sort of words of the time. Many Europeans and even some Americans were convinced a new world was dawning, right? Because, you know, the 19th century was changing into the 20. The Industrial Revolution had changed so much stuff going on. They were like, okay, clearly a new world is being born. This turning of the century, right, from the 19th to the 20th marks the dawning of a new world. They just weren't really sure how this world would be born. And that sort of uncertainty about the future led to a couple things. So, right, then this makes sense, right? This idea that the, the turning of the century would bring a lot about, right? You have the Industrial Revolution, as I mentioned. The world had changed enormously in just a couple of years, right? Only a few decades. Things had completely changed. The world looked like a new place. As a result of this, some people became fascinated with spiritualism, right? A way to deal with this new modernity. If you remember the populist episode uh, I did a couple weeks back, right? We talked about this populist woman who became a spiritualist. Not weird for the time at all, right? People were talking to the dead, saying like, you know, how, how are we going to live in this new world, right? Others looked to people like Joan of Arc or Napoleon as sort of models for the future, right? These big, great figures, mythic figures at this point, being like, we need a new you know leader like them to lead us into the future. Some people, like the Italian futurists, didn't look backwards, but instead looked forwards, right? They saw speed and change sort of as the guiding light for their philosophy. The guys like Giacomo Balla, who painted abstract speed and sound, a part of this group. A lot of the Italian futurists would eventually become fascists, sort of as, you know, obsession with, like, speed and pushing things forward, right? Uh, while neither, neither of these groups were exactly right, certainly a new world was born out of the fin de siècle uh, in sort of a very bloody and horrible way, and that way would be World War One. So, World War One, the Great War, uh, you always get a sort of a lot of numbers thrown at you. 
and things that cover World War One, and it's sort of, I know it's hard to sort of differentiate at some point or sort of realize the magnitude of them. But we'll just go through some numbers here. During World War One, more than ten million people died as a result of World War One. That's not just people who died in the fighting, right? But people who died from casualties or caught up in the famines and the the plagues that surrounded the war. It truly changed how wars were fought, sort of forever. The first truly modern war, right? This first industrial revolution war. There had been, you know, some earlier conflicts that perhaps presaged this, but sort of the World War One is like that first modern war, right? You fought with all the tools and sciences developed by the Industrial Revolution, and as a result of that, ten million people died, right? So we're gonna talk a lot about what this means, right? What it means to be a truly modern war. As you can see, we're still dealing with the fallout and the ramifications of the Industrial Revolution, right? Something we talked about, you know, at the beginning of this podcast series still with us and will remain with us throughout this whole sort of podcast adventure. So we're going to look at two major causes of the war. And obviously, right, you can't just boil something down to two things. But for, you know, the sake of this not being an eight-hour podcast, we're going to do that, right? Uh, Sorry to that guy who does those eight-hour podcasts. Um, I'm not you. All right, so the causes of the war, we're going to look at two things here. One, economic competition, right? Always come back to economics. And then this sort of European system of alliances, the sort of interlocking thing. So we're going to go through those both here. So the first one, economic competition. So as we talked about last week's episode, right? In the 19th century, a lot of these European countries had become colonial empires, right? Competing to see who could subjugate sort of the most people on this international stage. These sort of economic reasons, right? The people were making a lot of money out of these colonial enterprises. People got very, very rich off, you know, taking other people's stuff, basically, right? Destroying these other countries, they were getting very rich. And this competition didn't stop in the 19th century. It was continuing into the 20th century, right? At sort of an increased pace. If you look at sort of these maps, right, you can find maps of 1900, what sort of the major world states and their colonial possessions were. You see, you know, places like Belgium, France, Ottoman Empire, Great Britain, Italy, right? The Netherlands all have these huge colonies. You don't really think of Belgium having a big colony, but they did, especially in Africa. One of the most brutal colonial dictatorships, actually, was the Belgian one. So this massive competition between all these countries. And prior to World War I, Europeans had mostly managed to avoid out-and-out war with each other, right? There's a quote, sort of that after Napoleon's fall in 1814, there had been, quote, a hundred years of peace in Europe. That's not quite true, right, as a lot of these, you know, famous sayings are, sort of pushing some some stuff aside, but that's close enough to the truth for most people living in Europe, right? This is specifically about Europe. Obviously, in places like Africa and Asia, where you, and South America, where Europeans were coming in and trying to colonize these people, there was a lot of violence. There was not peace. But in Europe itself, for the most part, out and out total war had been avoided. The countries had fought each other largely in their colonial territories or settled it diplomatically, right? Saying, we'll pay you, we'll give you this territory, or we're going to fight you over colonial possessions, right? So fighting was still going on, just not in Europe for the most part. Coming out of the Industrial Revolution, the United Kingdom and Germany had sort of really emerged as the two strongest countries on the eve of World War One. They both had these big sort of manufacturing empires going on, right? You still think today of Germany as this big manufacturing country. And the UK uh, sort of started the Industrial Revolution in Europe 
And so they maintained that sort of power over time. But competition was heating up. Both countries were sort of competing for the raw materials, right? You can't have a manufacturing empire without having access to raw materials. That's sort of the basis for how this stuff works, right? You need iron, you need coal, you need all this stuff so you can make things like railroads and steel and guns. And there is limited amount of these resources, right? They are not sort of infinite in their availability and ease of access. And so they were fighting over who could access them the most easily. Or there was competition at this point. The other sort of big cause was this European alliance system, right? So partly one of the reasons that big wars had been avoided in Europe was this alliance system. It had developed in sort of the, after the fall of Napoleon, right? Who had these grand ambitions to sort of conquer the world and had, you know, conquered a lot of Europe, fail, fell apart in Russia, which, you know, I'm sure this new Napoleon movie we'll talk about that's coming out. But out of that, out of Napoleon's fall had come this big alliance system. So right before, we won't go through this whole development, right, this 100 years of history, we're not going to cover that, but we'll look at sort of right before World War I, there are basically two main groups. One was the Central Powers, eventually known as the Triple Alliance. The other were the Allies, known as the Triple Entente. And sort of those Central Powers and the Allies are World War I terms, but we'll use them even if it's right before World War I. Each side had their allies, right? So you have these, you know, these big groups, and we'll go through, I won't leave you hanging here on who was in these groups, we'll go through them, but each side has sort of, you know, three big organizations within them, and then smaller countries being allied. Uh, there were some neutral countries as well, it wasn't just these sort of completely foes each other, it wasn't all of Europe involved in this. Uh, so let's go through these groups here. One, the Central Powers, traditionally known as the Ottoman Empire, the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then Italy. Italy's the odd case because they never actually fought against the Allied powers in World War I and uh, eventually joined World War I on the side of the Allied powers, powers fighting the Central Powers. But sort of right before World War I, they were part of the, the quote-unquote Central Powers. So that's all these big groups, right? And if you're listening, you know, three of them no longer exist really, right? The Ottoman Empire no longer exists. Uh, the German Empire, which the way it was formulated at this time, included places like Poland and some other countries, no longer exists. And the Austro-Hungarian Empire no longer exists, right? Broken up in the wake of World War I, sort of a spoiler alert there. But you'll see that the Central Power sort of very much lost. And these big empires, I mean, at one point, the Ottoman Empire had been the biggest empire in the world, the strongest empire for a very, very long time, was very, very influential. Same for the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? All these groups were really big. On the other side, you have the Allied powers, the United Kingdom, the French Empire, the Russian Empire, and that would eventually include Italy and the United States, right? The beginning of the gist so far, World War One is not really a United States war, right? So the big question that we're talking about a lot about in next week's episode is why the U.S. got involved. But for now, sort of just know that it was later that the U.S. got involved. And then you have some neutral countries, right? Countries like Spain, like Switzerland, Netherlands, Sweden, Norway, all sort of tried to remain out of this big alliance system, remaining neutral, right? They didn't want to get caught up in sort of the sweep, the diplomatic, you know, heft of these other countries. They didn't want someone bossing them around. Uh, but even if they were neutral, right, they still had to deal with the consequences and outcomes of World War I. You couldn't escape them. It wasn't just like this was a war between France 
in the United Kingdom and Germany could just ignore it, right? The consequences sort of devastated a lot of these countries, devastated the world. So those are the sort of big sort of backing causes of the war, right? You have this economic competition going on, a sort of fight for resources, fight for supplies, for industrial manufacturing, you know, continuing the industrial revolution, and these sort of this alliance system, right? That sort of locks in these groups with each other. These alliances were just like, we're going to trade with you. We'll be friends. You know, maybe we'll play each other in soccer, right? They were sort of, if you get attacked, I will defend you, right? If you go after an enemy, I will go with you. These were sort of very much military alliances, military-focused things. And people were, the, you know, the point of this treaty was to be like, okay, one country won't attack another country because it will start this all-out war, right? That was sort of like the deterrent of this alliance system. But that sort of all falls apart when something happens, right? This sort of spark that kicks off World War One traditionally sort of is known as the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Uh, so some background here. Duke uh, was the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. He was assassinated on June 28th. Uh, 1914 by Gravillo Principe. Gravillo Principe was a uh, member of a Serbian nationalist group known as the Black Hand. If you want to be sort of nice, you'll call them a, a nationalist group. Other people would call them terrorist groups, right? And sort of like there's, you know, a lot of people writing about sort of who, how the, uh, how the Serbian nationalists were funded. Uh, if you're interested in that, I highly recommend the book The Sleepwalkers, sort of about this buildup to World War One. Sort of how World War One sleepwalked into how Europe sleepwalked into World War One, but on the, sort of as you know, the Serbian nationalist Serbia was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They wanted out of that, and so uh, Gravillo Princip shot at the Archduke right to try to make this point. And this wasn't weird, right? This is you know these sort of assassinations had been on the rise in Europe and and the United States too. You know, presidential assassinations were. Big is the wrong word here, but were far more common during this time period of figures, like big political figures, than they are today, right? Or at least that we see. So Princip actually, as seemingly a lot of these guys did, right? If you remember the homestead, the assassination attempt there, too, failed. The Black Hand to assassinate Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and the first guy uh, who was doing this set off a bomb, which exploded, but did not kill the Archduke, who then continued on with the rest of his sort of parade and speeches, leaving the speeches early, and then continued on his route home. And on that route home, Princip, knowing that the first attempt at assassination had failed, uh, then shot the Archduke and his wife uh, point blank in the face. And that attempt succeeded. Uh, they continued it, right? And so Princip had a second chance. And on that second chance, that time, he didn't miss. Uh, so sort of this, you know, why didn't they stop? question a big thing here. And this assassination was sort of the spark that set off this chain reaction that led to World War One. But I want to be clear here, right? Just because Princip assassinated the Archduke doesn't mean that World War One had to happen, right? I think a lot of times with these historical events, because they happened, we think that they had to happen. So when we tell the stories of them, it sort of tells like, okay, because step A happened, then step B, then step C, then D, and it sort of happens in lockstep. That's really not how history works, right? Each time sort of something else happened, there was a chance for something, for another thing to happen that would have prevented war, right? The actors, a lot of times, thought they were being forced into war, right? Sort of they saw that as their only path. But looking back on the facts, 
and sort of building back on the records of the time, it is clear that there were other opportunities to prevent this war. People just either didn't see them or too afraid to take them or thought they couldn't take them, right? And that's what this sort of sleepwalking into war thing is talking about. And these people were just sort of, you know, like a sleepwalker, just sort of following a path, right? They weren't really thinking about the other options around them or their sort of thinking was so constricted by what they saw as, you know, forces outside of their control that this war happened. So there's a big point here, right? World War One often seen as inevitable. That sort of this war was destined from the minute that Prince C pulled that trigger. But that's not really the case, right? Many, many chances to avoid war, the leaders in Europe just didn't take them or didn't see them as viable options, right? So war doesn't ever have to happen. It's sort of always a choice. So another thing that a lot of people might not know about World War One. And what's going on here is that the leaders of the UK, United Kingdom, Germany, and Russia, so sort of three of the biggest countries in World War One, one of the central powers to the Allied powers, were all related. And not just like a sixth cousin, a seventh cousin, very closely related, close enough that they all grew up together. They all knew each other very well and had sort of lived together for a long time. And up until the final moments of World War One, right, until those first you know, guns were shot in the conflict, they were in constant contact with each other. And it's very clear from that contact that a lot of them didn't want this war to happen. They just didn't see a way to stop it from happening, right? You know, I I might frame it as that none of them had the guts to stop the war, but other I would say that, you know, they just felt constricted by their sort of the political leanings of their countries, right? None of them is sort of and the guys we're talking about here are Kaiser Wilhelm II, the German Emperor, King George V, the King of England, and Tsar Nicholas II, Emperor of Russia. None of them were absolute monarchs, right? But they all still had tremendous amounts of power. They just didn't use that power and potentially could have stopped World War I with that power. They just didn't see a way to do that. So, a uh, quick timeline here, right? I mentioned we're not going to go into all this stuff. That's sort of the beginning of World War One. Obviously, a very abbreviated thing, right? So I'm going to sort of start with how this war got started after the assassination of the Archduke. So on June 28th, 1914, Gavrilo Princip assassinates Archduke Franz Ferdinand. On July 28th, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia after Serbia refuses the terms. So after the assassination, Ferdinand, Austria-Hungary, offered Serbia terms, right? They said, basically, you will have no military. You'll have to pay us for these incredible debts, right? For this assassination, you owe us all this, all this money. Uh, and if you say no, then we're going to invade you. Sort of this insane offer, right? Serbia would not have survived as sort of an independent entity at all if they had accepted this offer. And so they said no. Okay, and so Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. So Serbia is in a... In a alliance with Russia, and Russia mobilizes troops to help Serbia two days after that, on July 30th. And then on August 1st, Germany declares war on Russia, right? Because Germany is in an alliance with Austria-Hungary, and Russia is attacking Austria-Hungary as a result of the Serbian decision. On August 3rd, Germany declares war on France and invades Belgium, right? Sort of try to cut off. Germany's in the middle, right? If you look at a map between Russia and and France, they don't want to be attacked on two sides, so they started to decide to attack France first before it can get going. On August 4th, Great Britain declares war on Germany, right? It's in an alliance with France and Russia. On August 6th, the actual fighting between Russia and Austro-Hungary begins. 
And then on August 12th, Great Britain declares war on Austria-Hungary. So sort of completing this World War I thing. You'll notice here that uh, the Ottoman Empire doesn't get mentioned in this. Uh, they are part of this war, and um, they do begin fighting uh, during this time as well, just sort of more on the, the sidelines of the conflict rather than the main thrust. So, World War One, it's called a world war. Ooh. It's called a world war for a specific reason, right? The fighting was not contained into Europe or contained in Europe. It quickly spread to Africa, to Asia, the Middle East, right? The empire, there's fighting in all those continents, fighting everywhere. And it wasn't just Europeans fighting this war either, right? European colonies and the subjects in those colonies were often dragged into the war against their will, right? You know, put to work, digging trenches, doing all these awful jobs. But then also some people living in these colonies they weren't dragged into the war, but chose to fight, right? There's some famous pictures uh, of colonialists, you know, dressed in British garb, fighting in the war, right? And the reason they did this was sort of to show that they were not lesser than the Europeans, right? They're saying we're just as, you know, powerful, just as mighty as these European colonizers. This is perhaps a chance for us to show our strength, to show that, you know, this sort of white man's burden idea is the bullshit that it really is, right? We'll fight in this war and we'll fight, you know, very successfully. So people had different opinions on this, right? Not everyone thought that was a good strategy, but there were a number of, of groups, especially among the people who had been colonized, who did think that this was a good idea and so began, you know, fighting in World War One. So the beginning of this, you know, war, Germany wanted to win a quick victory. That's part of the reason why it attacked France so quickly, right? They invaded them in August 1914. They didn't think they could have the ability to fight this big, big war on two sides, right? This sort of two-front war. So they wanted to go through France, sort of surprise them and that side as quickly as they possibly could. And that had been sort of, you know, the way the wars were fought, right? You bring in your artillery, you bring in some horses, uh, cavalry, you know, run, run quickly through stuff. Uh, but the French uh, were able to halt the German advance along with their sort of British allies, right? They combined forces and were able to halt the German advance. So you have this stalemate, right? This big, big sort of area that's just these two sides are fighting over inches. And that stalemate lasted basically for the next four years. The Western Front stayed in northern France sort of as far as Germany got. The two armies were just dug into their trenches, fighting for literal inches at a time. And that really became the story of World War I on the Western Front, is this life in the trenches. And life in the trenches was not a pleasant thing. Brutal, very, very short. People died sort of constantly from just living in the trenches. And the thing to know is at the beginning of World War I, especially in places like Germany, but also in the UK and in France, sort of war was seen as a glorious thing, right? A way to prove your manhood, you know, becoming, leaving boyhood, becoming a man. There have been plenty of people in the United Kingdom sort of decrying this lack of war in Europe, right? We talked about this hundred years of peace. These people were saying, oh, you know, we're growing soft because our men can't be, you know, hardened in the crucible of war, that sort of stuff. And so with the onset of World War I, there's a lot of people, including Rudyard Kipling, the guy who wrote White Man's Burden, who were saying, oh, great. 
This is wonderful. This is a perfect time for our sons to prove themselves on the field of battle, right? For them to finally become men and to show how, you know, strong they are. Like this war will be over in six months. We'll, you know, we'll prove our might. We'll go out into the battlefield, all that sort of stuff, right? Especially a lot of these upper middle class people too, because that's the way they sort of made their names, right? You know, we have our uncle was a general, that sort of stuff, right? And they weren't having those opportunities. So there's seen by many as a very glorious war, right? But the soldiers actually fighting this war very quickly realized that that was a lie. This was not a glorious war for the soldiers in the trenches. Not a glorious war for anyone, really. New technologies coming out in the Industrial Revolution, right? The Industrial Revolution isn't just about making trains. It's also about, you know, new sciences like chemistry, like physics, all this stuff. And had brought new things to the battlefield. One was mustard gas, this horrible poison gas, right? That literally will just kill you in seconds, asphyxiate you, asphyxiate, asphyxiate. Uh, it's sort of, you know, awful, awful, awful stuff. And then also machine guns, right? You can kill now from far, far away, hundreds of people in a second, right? These new devastating technologies, made the sort of trenches in no man's land a, literally a living hell, a hellish place, right? There's a famous book about World War I called To Live in Hell, which is about life in the trenches, and it literally is uh, just words do not describe what it was like. And this really is what modern war became, right? Awful, awful place where, you know, any second you could die immediately in sort of some gruesome way, right? Christian, these no man's land, right? You know, these the, the space between the trenches where even poking your head up outside of the trench could mean instant death. There was some sort of maybe as a result of just how awful the war was, there was some early camaraderie between the two sides, right? So between the central and allied powers, the two people fighting each other. One example of that is the Christmas truce. Uh, it happened in 1914. It was never repeated. But sort of on that holiday, right, across the Western Front, the soldiers sort of without the knowledge of their superior officers basically agreed to have a truce. People came out of the trenches. They were playing soccer. There's pictures of this. You can find them online, little pictures of people playing soccer with each other. Some soldiers even exchanged gifts with each other, right? These people weren't necessarily you know, in the war because they hated the Germans. They were in the war because they got drafted or they thought it could help their career, get a little money of it. And they didn't, you know, like shooting these guys. And so you actually see some camaraderie between the sides early on. That was sort of quickly quashed. It never happened again. This holiday ceasefire uh, officers, you know, threatened disciplinary action. But there was some evidence that sort of just the normal regular soldiers didn't really hate each other. They were just in that war. Uh, that would sort of you know change with the uh, with officers you know threatening all this stuff. Lots of more propaganda coming out, but at the beginning there, it was clear that this was really wasn't like a war that a lot of people knew what they were sort of fighting over, right? It was just a war that they were in. Uh, some other things here about sort of life in the trenches. It wasn't just bullets that could kill you, though. Obviously, bullets did kill a lot of people. Uh, there's also rampant disease. The Spanish flu, which arrived at the end of World War I, was particularly virulent, right? Killing millions of people around the world. Sort of, you know, COVID is the, the thing that brought back a lot of people's attention to the Spanish flu because it was about 100 years prior to the 
to COVID, uh, but it's sort of very, very, very virulent disease. Also, you get new maladies, new problems like trench foot. I do not suggest Googling pictures of trench foot. But these trenches that, you know, they were fighting in were, if it rained, right, the, there was no way for the water to drain out, really. So they were just sort of inches of water on the ground almost at all times. Now get into people's shoes, get into people's socks. And when your feet are just constantly wet, that's really bad for them. Uh, so you get people have to get toes removed, get whole feet removed, not even from fighting, just from living in these trenches. Awful stuff. Back in Europe, not people didn't really know what was going on all the time. Most news of the war was heavily, heavily censored, right? Letters home, uh, where, you know, if a soldier sent a letter home, it was read by somebody and things were marked out, crossed out, or just cut out. So people really didn't have that much a conception of what the war was like at first. The newspapers were sort of reporting all these, you know, glorious things going on, even if that wasn't the case. But soldiers sort of started to manage to convey some of the horrors of the war through the letters. They were to, you know, slip some stuff past the censors. And then poetry as well began to sort of emerge as this new form of expression about the war. Most of them didn't get published till after the war, uh, but some managed to get out during the war. Guys like Siegfried Sassoon and others became sort of very famous poets writing about their experiences in the war. So it wasn't just the Western Front that the war was being fought on. It was also being uh, fought on the Eastern Front, right? So more in Russia. After the Russian Revolution in 1917, the new Soviet state uh, sued for peace, right? Led by Lenin uh, and ended its involvement in the war, which, you know, the, the Western Front didn't want, right? They thought it would bring more pressure onto them. But... Uh, what they didn't realize was that Germany itself was weakening, right? Uh, There's lots of internal pressure to end the war. Germany was quickly running out of money, uh, even if they had didn't have, even if they had one less front to fight on. Bullets were expensive, gas was expensive, munitions were expensive, and they were sort of being, you know, blockaded. All this stuff, they were losing access to materials. And a lot of people were just sort of straight up starving. They couldn't feed their soldiers anymore. And this is happening to its allies as well. Basically, Germany was being starved out of the world, running out of food and supplies. You notice here I'm not really going into detail. There'll be a little more detail about the U.S. involvement uh, in next week's uh, podcast. So I'm not really doing like a war uh, battle by battle sort of situation here. We're sort of speed running World War One. You know, people teach whole classes on World War One. There's whole podcasts. I think there's a podcast that literally does a podcast for each day of the war. So if you want that sort of detail, go to those sources. Uh, so the war ends. Uh, so the U.S. joined the war on the side of the Allies in 1917. We'll go over why they did that. Uh, there's debates over sort of the actual impact of the U.S. on the end of the war, right? Uh, they only fought in two conflicts before the Germans capitulated, so the U.S. didn't do that much fighting in the in the war. But sort of the other side said, well, the psychological impact of the U.S. entering the war on the Allies can't really be understated, as well as the U.S. Uh, giving supplies and stuff. We'll talk more about that in next week's podcast. Um, so there was a debate when the sort of the allied powers saw that the war was going to end soon. They started debating on how to end the war, right? War just doesn't stop, especially a war of this magnitude. Things are going to change coming out of this war. And so the next podcast, we'll talk about those changes at length. Uh, but some sort of quick things here to know. The fighting ended on November 11th, 1918. At the end of World War One, as I mentioned, several long-standing dynasties 
like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, were no more. There's an entire generation of European men uh, dead now called the Lost Generation. And European countries had spent billions of dollars on fighting this war, right? They needed to rebuild their economies. But the question sort of remained, right? Was the war even truly over? All right, so some conclusionary points here. World War I was not inevitable, right? It did not have to happen. The sort of idea of sleepwalking into war. It was a horrible, horrible experience for many involved. Uh, you know, lots of movies try to capture this. Some make it seem a little more glorious than it actually was. I recommend Paths of Glory if you're interested in sort of a good movie on World War One by Stanley Kubrick. Though there are another, a number of others out there. Sort of the first, you know, modern war, right? This first war brought about by the Industrial Revolution sort of fought with the tools of the Industrial Revolution and then fought because of the economic reasoning, economic logic behind the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and it, began, it began, began sort of a new era in both Europe and the United States. All right, that's it for today's episode. Uh, look forward to the one next week as well on sort of the American involvement in World War I. Uh, but have a great rest of your day.